Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. As I was visiting, Linda Carroll's small group was up at Tokwitz, which is our uh, retreat center. Yeah. And so um, taught on marriage with that group. That group together, there were, uh, what, eight couples, nine couples, including Julie and me. It's a formidable group. 320 years of marriage. Wow. Yeah. Amazing, huh? 352. Yeah. I wasn't including ours. Coming okay, from, there you go. 352 yeah. years of marriage. There's some deep wisdom that It was amazing. There. And so we got up there. And so, um, you know, Sheila. Were you teaching Sheila, them or were they teaching you? Well, sort of both. But <laughs> Sheila, anyway, Sheila's like, we're going to play a game tonight. Bunko, you guys have played Bunko? Yeah, I think it's even. Yeah, Bunko. So anyway, we didn't know Bunko. So we're like, okay, we're in. We'll play. And then she's like, $6 a person. Wow. Like $6 a person. She goes, we've got great prizes. Everyone will get a prize at the end. You know who didn't get a prize? Yeah. Yeah. So I came home early. That that was it. I'm not going to do that anymore. (laughs) All right. Hey, listen, let's do this just because we didn't do this yet. Um, Greet the people around. Stand up. Stand up. Hello. Greet the people. And then if you guys would scoot in a little bit, like scoot in, scoot in, scoot in. That would be great. That's great. Yeah, just scoot in. Sort of scoot over, you guys. Scoot, scoot, scoot. It's a little easier to... All right. All right. Very cool. Thank you. Okay. You guys didn't scoot in. Okay. That's okay. That's not the first time people haven't listened to what I asked you to do. No problem. All right. Here's what we're doing. Today, we are finishing our series on why Jesus hates religion. And this is like the only series I've known since I've come to Mariners. We've been in it for weeks, it seems like, but we're going to finish it today. So let me just do this. Let me catch us up a little bit so that we all are kind of on the same page and we'll finish with gusto today. But a lot of times when you throw out that idea, Jesus hates religion, uh, the first question that comes up is, but didn't he start one? In fact, isn't the religion that has Jesus' name in it the biggest religion in the world? And while it is true that Christianity is huge, Jesus never intended to start a religion. We know that. He did not intend to start a religion. Uh, That was something that sort of came on the backside. In fact, for the first couple of centuries, uh, Christianity, or the followers of the way, as it was called, was called an anti-religion by the people in uh, the Greek society and in the Jewish society because it so much broke all the rules of how religion works. And then eventually it sort of became codified and became very much like a religion. But originally that was not the case. And here was the deal. As Jesus looked at the religion of the day, he realized that religion was actually pushing people away from God and not toward God. And so uh, if you're familiar with the way that Jesus approached his ministry, the people by far that he had the hardest time with were religious people. And so he would light in to religious people and say, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Because here's what he observed. And these are still things that are true today. Religion tends to build pride in people because they they look at themselves and they think, I've done all these things. Isn't God lucky to have me? And Jesus pushed against that idea and said, don't ever think that God is lucky to have you. Or there would be hypocrisy, because in religion, the outside looks so important. It's so important to sort of look a certain way. And Jesus would push against that and say, it's not the outside. It's the inside that matters. It's the inside that God sees. 
Um, he would see people start comparing themselves with each other and say, well, I'm more religious than you, and you know, I, I sort of fulfill these rituals or these things better than you. And Jesus would say, oh my gosh, are you missing the point? It is not a comparison game. That's not what we're trying to do. And finally, Jesus railed against them because they would actually be exclusive. They would push people out away from them and say, no, you don't follow our rules well enough. And Jesus came in and said, you're being judgmental. You're being exclusive. You don't understand how far away from God's heart that whole attitude is. And so Jesus pushed really, really hard against the religion of the day. And so we've sort of gone through all of those things. And here's the deal. And um, if, if, if you're sort of tired today and you're, you're thinking you're going to take a nap, maybe somewhere in between my message, let me just say this. If you, if you will stay awake for what I'm about to say and then wake up right at the end, that would be good. So just nudge the person next to you if this is a problem. But here's the deal. Uh, Julie and I are in a rooted group. Have you guys ever, have you guys done rooted? How many people here have tried the rooted thing? Okay, rooted is very cool, and I'd recommend it. But it's a small group experience for 10 weeks. And what we did in our rooted group this last week is everybody went around the table. There was about 10 of us. Everybody went around, and they told the story of how they met Jesus, of how Jesus came into their life. And one of the stories was by a woman who she said, when I was in sixth grade, I had a Sunday school teacher who explained very clearly what it meant to be a Christian, sort of the whole idea of Jesus died for your sins and you need to accept that and make him uh, sort of the leader of your life. And she said, I think that I did it at that point. I sort of understood it and I did it. But then she said, through high school, college, and early adulthood, she said, I sort of circulated back and forth between living like hell and then trying to be as good as I could to win back God. And she sort of went through that for a long period of time of sort of going back and forth, doing things that she knew she shouldn't do, feeling super guilty, then saying, I've got to ramp it up and be really, really good. She tried to be good and realized she wasn't good enough. And then one day she was talking to a friend on the phone who was a Christian, and they were sort of talking about this dynamic, and her friend said, isn't Jesus sufficient for you? And there was just something about that line, because what she realized is he had not been sufficient for her sort of fun, and so she had lived like hell. And then she realized that he had not been sufficient for her as far as forgiving her, and so she worked super hard to try and win God back. And just that phrase, isn't Jesus sufficient? Isn't he enough? All of a sudden, the light came on, and she said, I felt this overwhelming presence of Jesus in my life. And her life dramatically changed. And it's so interesting. As we went around the table, everybody didn't have that exact story. But there was a story like that, where all of a sudden, Christianity wasn't a bunch of theological statements or about a a moral code that I live by or even about coming to church. It was reduced to this thing of all of a sudden, Jesus became very real to me. He became personal. He became a friend. He became a partner in my life. And my life has been radically changed since then. And you see, when Jesus came, he didn't come to form a religion because religion so often actually pushes people away from God and gives the whole wrong concept of who God is and what he's looking for. Jesus came to form a relationship. 
And today, as you're sitting here, as you're just thinking, and I know some of you and a lot of you I don't know, uh, that's really the question of the day. Has he come into your life in this relational form? Do you have a story where you would say, all of a sudden, it just became Jesus and me? It wasn't about how good I am. It wasn't about how, I can, how many Bible verses I can quote. It's not about making church. It's not about doing a whole bunch of good things. It's really just about this relationship because ultimately that's what it comes down to. And that's, that's where we're going to land at the end. We have some work to do before then, but that's where we're going to land. And I just want you to think about that because we're going to give you a chance. If you're saying, that's what I want today, we're going to give you a chance for that. Okay, now, switch gears for a second. I'm going to bring a picture up onto the screen, and I'm going to ask you, is something good happening here, or is something bad happening here? Okay, so look at this picture. Can you see that? Is that? All right, so how many of you would say something good is happening here, you think? How many would say something bad is happening here? And how many of you would say, I have no idea what's happening here? Okay, one thing that is so funny, I picked out this picture without realizing it. Do you see the face of the person holding the child? Can you see that? It's like this little bear face. I didn't even notice that. Just to throw in a little more confusion about that. Well, here's the deal. Here's what I think. You can't really know what's going on because you don't have any context for it. You don't know what's happened before. You don't know what the relationship that these two men holding guns have. You don't know really who this kid is. You don't know what's going to happen in the future. And so the reality is you look at that and you say, I don't know what's happening because I don't have a context. I don't don't have the whole picture. All I have is like one puzzle piece, and that's all that I can see. And here's the reality. So many of us, so many people live their life out of a context. Uh, they They don't really see the whole picture. They see just a part of the picture, and they make their decisions, and they base their life just based on a little snapshot of what I think. So I think things like this. I think that um, when you see like a teenage kid who's thinking about dropping out of school, uh, part of the problem here is a context. Because for those of us that have gone through school, maybe gone through college, And we think back and we think, would we have ever dropped out of high school? I mean, would that have been a good call? At this point in our lives, we'd say, no way, I'd never do that. I can see the big picture. That's a dead end to drop out. But for a teenage student that is hating school, they only have a little sliver. They're out of context. They have a little sliver. And their reality is not accurate. You think about a man, maybe, who's about to have an affair. And, you know, he's sort of gone down this road and he's about to cross this line, and maybe we stand back and we look and we say, how could you do that? Don't you understand the consequences of destroying a marriage, of destroying a family, of what really maybe is being promised but will not be delivered in the end? And we'd say, the context, if you understood the big picture of what's happening, you'd never consider doing this. But the problem is people get narrow and they only think in terms of a snapshot. Or a woman who decides, I have no reason to live. There's nothing to live for anymore. And the problem is she doesn't have context for her life. Or a guy who's just sort of going through the motions at work. He doesn't have context for his life. Uh, Somebody that just fritters their life away and is not really aiming at anything. We'd say, well, there's just no context. You see, context defines reality. 
And we have this problem when it comes to our relationship with God. So often we just take a snapshot. So people say, well, as long as I go to church, I'm okay. So I'll just do sort of the picture of church, but they don't understand the bigger context of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. So they're real dutiful. I go to church every Sunday, and then they wonder, why is my life not changing? Why is church not meaningful to me? Why am I not making any progress? Well, because you've taken one part of your relationship with Jesus, you've made it a snapshot, and there's no other context. Or people... uh, you know, that, that do good things, that serve. And after a while, they just go, I'm so worn out from serving, and I don't want to serve anymore. Well, the problem is it's become a context issue. You're not seeing the bigger picture of why serving is a good thing or the, what it's doing. But it can even be a deeper problem. So, for instance, if you're sitting here today and you're basically feeling guilty about your life, you're feeling guilty about the things you've not done, or maybe you're feeling guilty about the things you have done. What I want to say is it's because you're seeing a snapshot. You're only seeing one part of your life and you're missing the context of what your relationship with Jesus looks like. Or if you're sitting here and you're saying, I'm basically very afraid. I'm afraid of the future. I'm insecure. I don't know what's going to happen. The problem is a context issue. The problem is you don't see the big picture of what's happening. And so you're becoming sort of obsessed or fascinated by just this one part of your life, and it's overwhelming you. And you see, these are context issues. These are issues where you're not seeing all of reality. You're only seeing a slice of reality, and now it's causing great stress in your life. Well, very often, that's what religion becomes. It becomes just a snapshot, just a little part And we wonder, why don't our lives change? Why isn't this meaningful? Why doesn't Christianity make a real difference in my life? Why isn't Jesus real to me? And it's a context issue. Now, there's no place where we tend to just do a snapshot, probably more than certain rituals that happen inside the church. So, for instance, we're going to take communion a little bit later. And probably most of you have taken communion many, many, many times. The question is, is this a part of a bigger whole, or is it just a little snapshot where you sort of check that off and said, well, I did that? Or maybe you were baptized, and baptized just becomes sort of this hoop to jump through. I should do that. My parents did it for me when I was a child, whatever the thing is. But here's the thing that is so interesting, and what we want to talk a little bit about today, is God gave us rituals to give us context. We do the exact opposite. They become things that are out of context. God actually places them in our lives, puts them into following him because he says, you need context, and I need you to see the big picture and not get fascinated with just the small picture. So here's what I want to do. Let's go ahead and just go through uh, one of the rituals of the Old Testament and sort of see what God was up to, and then we're going to push it to after Jesus came and rituals that we still follow today and ask the question, why do we do that? Why do we do a ritual? What difference does it really make in our life? Here is what was always true of rituals, okay? So if you're going to remember one thing, remember this. A ritual helps us remember God's faithfulness in the past, things that he's done for us in the past. So a ritual focuses backwards and says, remember. Secondly, it helps us think of promises God's given us for the future, So a ritual has a backward-looking way 
what's happened before. It also has a forward-looking way, what's going to happen in the future. What is God promising to happen? And then rituals always then ask the question, given what we know God has done in the past and how he's been faithful to you and how he's been, you know, he's come through, and given the promises that he says in the future, which are amazing, and as the God of the universe, he says, I can deliver on these, how do you live right now? What decisions do you make right now? Right now when the pressure's on and you're feeling lots of stress about life and you're trying to decide, you know, am I going to drop out? Am I not going to drop out? Am I going to keep this job? Am I going to go look for something else? Am I going to stay faithful in my family? Am I not going to stay faithful? Am I going to live with guilt? Am I going to get rid of guilt? Right now, given the fact that God has done this in the past for you and that he promises to do this in the future, what are you going to do right now? given the context of your life. And that's always the way rituals were meant in the Old Testament and then eventually in the New Testament. So let me ask you this question. Of everything, of everything that was a ritual-type thing in the Old Testament, is there any of the rituals that stand out and you say that was probably the most important ritual that they did in the Old Testament? What's that? Sacrifices. Sacrifices, and specifically, the Passover sacrifice. That's what I was looking for, and nobody would guess it, because it's one of those things that's in my mind, and you'd never get it, but that's okay. Passover. Passover. The Passover sacrifice was the biggest thing in the Old Testament. Now, do you guys, you guys are familiar with Passover, yes? You've heard of it? Yes. Okay, Passover. Just real quick. History on Passover. Uh, the Jews have been in captivity in Egypt for 430 years. God came to Moses in a burning bush. He said, I'm going to free my people. You're going to go down, march into the most powerful person in the world, Pharaoh, and you're going to say what? Let my people go. Okay, and he's just going to let them go. And Moses says, I don't like that plan. He says, They're not going to, he's not going to let them go. I know that guy. He's not going to let them go. And God said, but I'll be with you. It's going to work out. So Moses goes down and he says, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say? No way. You're an idiot. There's no way. Why would I let him go? This is my workforce. And so then God does a series of plagues, which you all know. Let's name a plague. What was one of the plagues? All right, good. So you got them all just on one shot there. All right, that's right. We didn't hear any of them, but that's right. Those were the plagues. And then the final plague, the final thing that happened, remember, the final thing, because Pharaoh kept on saying, okay, I'll let you go. And then, no, 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 I'm not going to let you go. Finally, he said, all right, one last one. And it was what? Kill the firstborn. Firstborn in all of Egypt. Firstborn human, firstborn livestock. Everything that's firstborn is going to die on a particular night. The angel of death is going to come over. Angels of death, actually, are going to come over. And he says, but there is an out. And the out is if you do what? If you sacrifice a lamb and paint on your uh, door sill, basically, the lamb's blood. And when the angel of death sees that blood, sees that symbol of sacrifice, he will pass over and your firstborn will not be killed. It was a very, very dramatic night that night. As uh, the firstborn from the greatest in the land, including Pharaoh, to the least in the land, and all the livestock that were firstborn died. Now here is what is so interesting about this story, 
And of course, what that does is it launches the children of Israel out of Egypt. They are delivered. They are rescued and delivered. But I want to read something out of Exodus 12, 24 through 28, because there's something really interesting that God says even before the Passover happens. And here's what it is. Let's read it. I'll read it. You guys just listen. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. All right, so here's the thing that's so fascinating. Even before it happens, even before this night that is so dramatic, God says, this is not a one-time occurrence. I want you to remember this every year. Here's what he says. I want you to make this a ritual. And here's what God is thinking. He's thinking, in the future, you're going to have times where you're going to need to be rescued and delivered. There's going to be times when the situation is so overwhelming, whether it's personally in your life or it's my people as a whole, where you look and you say, there is no way we can get out of this. And you're going to celebrate that ritual, and it's going to give you a context for what God can do in the past, how he's rescued and delivered in the past, and what he promises to do in the future. And so right now, you can make it. Right now, you can get through this. And so we see it happening. In the Old Testament, we have it recorded that they do this Passover. So the first time they do it is a year later, Now, just think of what's happened in the last year, okay? So the first time God says the Passover, at this point, they're still slaves in Egypt, 430 years being slaves. Pharaoh has sort of gone back and forth on whether to let them go or not. How would they ever guess that this is going to work this time? So it's the night of the Passover, and they have no idea what's going to happen. But since that time, Passover happened. Pharaoh let them go. They went out. They escaped, and then Pharaoh's army started to chase them, and they got stuck where? Against the Red Sea, against a body of water. There is no hope. But all of a sudden, God does what? Miraculously, he parts the Red Sea. They walk through dry land. Then the Egyptian army starts to come through, and what happens? It closes up. They all die. All of a sudden, the army is gone. They are free. They go out into the wilderness, and they realize when they get out there, oh, my gosh, we have no food. And God says, no problem. I'll take care of you. Every day when you wake up, there will be food on the ground, manna. And he takes them all the way to Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up. He gets this law. He comes down. Now about a year has taken place, and Moses says, it is time for us to remember the Passover, because that's our history. That tells us how God has rescued us in the past. It reminds us of the promises he has in the future so that right now we can be faithful. And so they do it with Moses. And then time and time and time goes by and they wander in the wilderness for 40 years because they were disobedient. And finally, Moses dies. And who's the next leader? Who's the next leader? Joshua, right? That's what we wanted to hear. Joshua, that's okay. Anybody that guessed, I appreciate it. It was Joshua. And what is Joshua going to do? What's the job Joshua has? It's to 
conquer the land. It's to come in and conquer the land. And so they're standing. It says that here this new thing comes around. I mean, it comes around that it's Passover time. They are, it's like the night before they're going over to Jericho for the first conquest. Now, just mind you what's happening here. Here's a bunch of slaves. They've never been an army before. They've never fought before. This is their first shot at doing it. And you can imagine they are as nervous as can be because it's not just Jericho, but you're going to go in and you're going to face all of these fortified cities and all these warring people and all these giants, what they call giants in the land, and I'm going to be with you. And so the night before, Passover happens to fall. And Joshua says, we need to remember what God's done in the past, how he delivered us in the past. We need to remember or, or to meditate on the promises of the future that he's going to give us this land. And that's going to help us right now because we've got to cross the Jordan and fight against the city. And they do it. And then time goes on and on and on and on. And the people of Israel, the people of God have fallen away. By and large, they have not followed God. And then this king named Josiah shows up. And Josiah is a good man. And he follows God. And he says, we've got to get the people back to God. And he says, you know what? We're going to celebrate the Passover. And so he commands. He says, we're going to celebrate the Passover. Because we need to remember how God has delivered us in the past. We need to remember the promises he has in the future. And we've got to turn around right now. We've got to act like people that are in a context of something that God is doing. And so he does that. And then eventually the people of Israel fall away again. And they're disobedient. And they're exiled. They're taken out of their land. And they're in exile for 70 years. And they're They're out of their land. It's the worst thing that could happen to them. But then God delivers them and brings them back into the land. And there is a priest named Ezra. And Ezra says, you know what we need to remember? Guess what it is? Passover. And so Ezra says, let's remember that God's delivered us again. Let's remember the promises he's given us in the future so that we act the right way right now, that we live in a way that is pleasing to God right now. And so the Passover, really, the Passover was never meant to be just this little ritual thing. It was always to right-size for the people. This is what's going on. This is what you need the context for. Because life tends to make us look narrowly at what's going on. And just think about this. You lose your job. And you think, oh my gosh. And you worry about it. And you're like, there's no jobs out there. This is the worst time I could be out of work. What am I going to do? And God would say, well, instead of obsessing about your current situation, why don't you look at how I've been faithful to you in the past? How I've always taken care. How you've been in jams before and I've always come through for you. And let's look at the promises of the future. The things that I've told you, you can bet on. The things that you you know I'm going to come through on. And now let's look at your situation And you know it's going to be okay. You know I'm going to carry you through this. You know that in the end, it's going to work out. Or you look at your retirement, and it just disappeared over the last couple of years. And you're like, I I was just talking to a guy, and he said he, he retired in 2006. And right after he retired, the market crashes. And he said, if I had only known, I would not have retired at that point. But then, in knowing this guy, he's put it in context. But God's been faithful in the past. He's good for his promises in the future. It's going to be okay right now. 
Maybe you have kids that are out of control. Maybe you have a marriage that isn't working. Maybe you're so disappointed with your job. There's any number of things. And what God says is, listen, the reason that we do these rituals is so that you'll focus on how I've been faithful in the past. Know that I'm good for the future. You can handle it right now. So that was always what the rituals were meant to be. And let me just share what happened as the Old Testament, we'll hit this quickly, but as the Old Testament sort of goes by, uh, what eventually happens is that the rituals are marginalized. All of a sudden, they aren't being used at all or not used very well. So during, let me just read these real quick and sort of pick out what's the problem now? What's happening to these rituals? This happens during King David's time. It's written about in Psalm 50. David's uh, basically worship leader says this, listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. If If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will honor me. And then years down the line, before the exile, before they were knocked out of the land, uh, it says, uh, again, a word comes to Isaiah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and of fat Uh, and the fat of fattened animals. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, and convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of them. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. And then we get the last statement in the last book of the Old Testament. They are still having problem with the rituals. In Malachi 1, it says, But you ask, how are we showing contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not uh, light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. So here's what's happening. God had an intention for these offerings, for these rituals, for these festivals. It was always to remind them of the past, help them see the future, and to act properly right now. But they had gotten off. And so here were some of the mistakes, and these are mistakes that we make sometimes when we take communion or we get baptized. Here's the first mistake, a false Ritual is one where we think this is for God. And clearly in these texts, God says, this isn't for me. It's not like I'm thirsty and I need blood to drink. So go kill your animals so I can drink the blood. He says, I don't need it. It's not for me. This is for you. This is to remind you of what I've done. And so often when we do something like this, we think, oh, somehow I'm helping God here by taking communion or getting baptized. I'm doing some favor to him. And the reality is God says, it's not for me at all. It's for you. Now, some people will say, but doesn't God say he's pleased when we do something like this? 
And it is true. God is pleased. But here's the way that it works. Uh, My mom was just reminding me of this story a while back because she lives here, so we're spending a lot of time with my mom. And she said, one day we had some guests over, and it was sort of an uncomfortable thing because we weren't very close to this family, and I was a little guy. And so after dinner, there was a lot of tension in the room, and I said, I'm going to make dessert. And so they all said, oh, isn't that cute? I was probably five or six years old. So I went into the kitchen, was in there for a while, and I came out with my, my specialty, which was saltines with chocolate sauce on them. And I served them to the people that were there. And, you know, it's funny. As my mom tells that story, she tells it with such delight and such pride in me. But I'll guarantee you this. It was not because she loved the saltine with chocolate sauce. It had nothing to do with the sacrifice. It just had to do with my heart. She loved my heart on that. And when God says that he's pleased that you do something like communion or you get baptized, it's not because you're like filling something that he doesn't have or appeasing him in some way. It's because when your heart is right, he just delights like a parent delights in a child. That's why he loves it. So the first problem is that they would think that it was for God and not for them. Then the second one is they go through the motions and uh, their heart was not in it. And God said, I don't want you to do it if your heart's not in it. Don't you understand that's the whole purpose of it? The whole purpose is that your heart is in it. And then finally, it would actually detach them from God and not attach them to God. It was actually a way that they pushed God away through the rituals. Imagine this. Let's say that I'm courting Julie and I'm trying to make a great impression on her. And so I spend a ton of time coming up with a great date for Friday night. And we go out to her favorite dinner and I get her flowers and You know, I get all dressed up, and I give her a gift, and I'm totally tuned into our whole conversation. I'm not wandering. I don't talk about ESPN once. We just focus on what she wants to talk about, and we have this great, great, great date, and I take her home and kiss her goodnight, and she walks in, and she just goes, it's amazing. Maybe I'll even marry that guy. Who knows? And so, and I just think, well, that went over so well. The next Friday, I show up, And I do the exact same thing, the exact same flowers, the exact same restaurant, the exact same conversation, you know, the exact driver home. And she's sort of like, well, that's kind of odd. And then the next week I show up and I go, this is going great. And I do the exact same thing again. And, you know, really, by this time, I'm not interested in anything that she's saying because I've heard her say it all before. And so I'm actually sort of pulling away from her and no brain on, you know, the restaurant, no brain on getting the flowers because I've done it all over again. You know, if that happens seven or eight times, Pretty soon, Julie's not saying, this guy is the guy of my dreams. It's like, this is the guy of my nightmares. I mean, this is like Groundhog Day. It just repeats over and over again. This sucks. I hate this. Well, that's what was happening with these people. They were going through the motions, and on the outside, it looks so good. They're performing these things, and God's saying, you're actually using this to push me away. You actually don't want any contact with me at all. You're using the ritual to say, you stay there, and we'll do this little thing for you. And I'm really comfortable just staying right where I'm at. And so God said, I hate these offerings. I hate the rituals. I hate it when you do it for the wrong reason. And basically, that's what Jesus walks into. He walks into a setting uh, during the first century where the religious leaders, by and large, and the people of Israel, by and large, were using the rituals in the total wrong way. And so Jesus rails against them. He says, what are you doing? 
These are not bringing you closer to God. You're actually using them to detach from God, to push God away, to put up a wall, to act like everything's cool. God, you stay on your side of the wall. We'll stay on our side of the wall. And we'll throw you these little rituals every once in a while to keep you happy. So let's just see real quick what Jesus did with the rituals. Okay, this is going to be the last thing we look at in this series. It is so amazing. At the beginning of his ministry, we see that he is observant of the rituals. We see that he goes to synagogue every Saturday, goes to church, that he plays by the rules of how the church works. All the good things of what church was to be, of what synagogue was to be, Jesus did. We see that he observes and his family observes Passover. In fact, do you remember the story when he's 12 years old and he's left behind at the temple? Some of you know that story that his parents leave town without him. Well, you know what they were in town for? The Passover. They were celebrating the Passover. And, uh, and then we also see that he got baptized, right? And so Jesus was very observant. The rituals he did. But this very interesting statement is made by his cousin, John the Baptist, right at the beginning of his ministry. And it's in John 1.29. It says, the next day, so John had been talking to his disciples. He had some disciples. The next day, it says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an interesting statement. What lamb do you think that John is referring to there? The Passover lamb. He was referring to the lamb that had saved the people before. This symbolic gesture of the lamb that had taken care of the sins of the children of Israel, had rescued them from where they were, had given great promise for where they had gone. And John the Baptist at the beginning of Jesus' ministry says, that guy that you're seeing there, that guy that looks just ordinary, that everybody, you know, he's wearing a robe just like everybody else, That guy is special because he is the lamb who's going to take away the sins of the world. And we see Jesus go all the way through his ministry and do things that nobody had ever done before and give teachings that nobody had ever heard before and live a life that nobody could have ever lived. And at the end of his life, on the last night, uh, the night before he was killed, he's in Jerusalem. And what ritual do you think that he's celebrating that night? Passover. This is not coincidental that this is the Passover celebration. And he's with his disciples. And remember, they come into town and he sends a couple of his disciples ahead and says, you need to find a place where we can observe Passover. And they find an upper room and Jesus arrives And he comes up, and what's the first thing that he does? Remember when they go into the upper room, he does something that really startles them. He washes their feet, right? He comes down. He is now going to put himself in a place of saying, you need to understand what my role is here. And he puts himself in the most humble position, a servant that washes feet. And they have the Passover meal, actually, because it says that after supper, after the Passover meal, after they celebrate this Passover, Jesus takes the cup, or first he takes the bread, and he says, this bread represents what? My body that's given for you. And then he takes the cup, and he says, what does the cup represent? My blood that is spilled for you. And this is such an interesting thing. When I discovered this, I was like amazed. 
in John's gospel, John actually has Jesus dying at a different time than the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have Jesus dying at noon, and they're probably accurate. Probably from a historical standpoint, that's exactly when he died, was at noon. Do you know when John says that Jesus died in his gospel that was written much later and it's much more theological, sort of, much more symbolic? And not that it's not true. It's just that in John's gospel, he's trying to always get the meaning out. John has him dying at a different time. He has him dying at 2 in the afternoon. And so, depending on where you are, some of you are feeling very uncomfortable with that statement. You're saying, now, wait a second. Are these things historically accurate or not? And just to give you an out, some people say, well, John's using Roman timing, and uh, the synoptics are using Jewish timing and so forth. So if you're uncomfortable that they would have a different time, then that's your answer, and you're okay, because the Gospels don't lie. But here's what I think. I think John knew exactly when Jesus died, because you know who was there when he died? John. John was there. He didn't have a problem that he didn't know what time it was. But here's what he thought. It's more important that he dies at 2 o'clock for people to understand who he was. Because at 2 o'clock, guess what was happening in the temple court on the altar? The Passover lamb was being killed. And John says, you need to understand who Jesus was. He was the Passover. That is not a coincidence. He is the Passover. He is the lamb. He is the one that reminds us of everything that God has been faithful to do in the past, everything that he'll do in the future, the one that brings us close to God. That is Jesus. And so John says, right when the Passover lamb had its neck slit, Jesus died on the cross. And so we come to communion. We come to this ritual that Jesus set the night before he died. And what this ritual is meant to do is to remind us of God's faithfulness in the past through Jesus and of the promises that come true because of who Jesus is and what we can bet on. And he says that means a certain thing right now to you. It puts your life in a context. In 1 Corinthians 11, then, Paul writes this about the Lord's Supper, about what it symbolizes. Paul says these words, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. In other words, Jesus did this, and now I'm just passing it on. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So he takes this bread, And he says, this represents my body. Now, when you think about this representing Jesus' body, here's what it means. It means, you know, when, when we couldn't get to God, God came to us. When we had a hard time grasping on to the majesty of God and the fact that he's outside of our context and, you know, he transcends the universe and nobody ever really sees him and it's all just by faith, Jesus said, You know what I did? As God, I became flesh. I became a person. I came to you. You followed me around. You heard me speak. I touched you when I healed you. I brought God to you. This is my body. 
And this is my body that was destroyed for you. This is my body that was beat and whipped. This is my body that had stakes driven through wrists and ankles. This is my body that was crucified. If you've ever wondered if God loved you, you don't need to wonder anymore because this is my body that I gave for you. And furthermore, this is my body that when it died, all of Satan threw everything at me that, was, that, that could have been meant for you. It was really the stuff you had done wrong. And I said, but I'll take it on me and I'll go to hell so that you don't have to go to hell. This is my body and it's for you. If you've ever wondered if God loves you, you don't have to wonder. If you've ever wondered if you've been included in God's family, you don't have to wonder. If you've ever wondered if God has a plan for your future, you don't have to wonder. He said, this is my body. It's for you. It's a ritual. But it reminds you of the context of your life. And then it says after that, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And here's what Jesus knew. He knew that the way that we operate is we tend to try and win God over. We think that by our goodness, we can win God over. If I'm just good enough, if I just believe hard enough, if I go to church enough, if I serve the poor and needy enough, if I do these things, God will accept me. And Jesus says, no, there's a new arrangement, and the arrangement has nothing to do with what you do. This has to do with what I did. And when my blood was spilled, there was a whole new arrangement set up. And now all you have to do, all you have to do is believe in it. All you have to do is accept this new covenant, this new arrangement. That's all that you have to do. And if you've been living with fear, you can know that I've been there before and that I'll carry you through. And if you've been living with aimlessness, all you have to know is I've got a purpose for you now. This new arrangement brings you close to God just by belief, just by faith. We're going to take communion. And the way that we're going to do it is um, in a minute, uh, Ethan will come up. And in fact, Ethan, if you and the guys want to come up, you can. Uh, He's going to come up and we're going to play. And you're going to come up and have a chance to take communion. And the way you do it is simply by taking a piece of bread and dipping it into the juice and, and eating it. But I just want us to be so clear about what this represents. This is not a ritual where God says, okay, now that you've jumped through that hoop, I'm happy with you. This is not a ritual where we prove to God how good we are. This is not a ritual that, uh, you know, sort of just boosts us up and makes us feel like everything's cool now. This is a ritual where we remember what Jesus did in the past, how he came to us when we couldn't come to him. This is a ritual where he pushes us to the future and says, every promise I've made, I'm coming back, and I'm taking you with me. Every promise I've made will come true. So right now, it's okay. No matter where you are in your life, it's okay you're right in my hands. Nothing can pull you out of my hands. 
Now, there might be some of you that have never accepted Jesus in this way. Maybe you've never understood. Maybe you've never committed to it. Maybe you've always thought that Jesus was just sort of this good teacher. Maybe you always thought that it was based on your goodness. If you were good enough, you could win God over. And today, for the first time, what you're hearing is it's not about that. It's about what Jesus has already done. It's about stepping into a relationship with him. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.